Welcome back to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced her the most on her life path is speaker, teacher, multi-dimensional seer and integration specialist Susie Miller. If you're not familiar with Susie's work, let me just give you a hint of what's to come by saying that she's a visionary speaker a telepathic communicator, a multidimensional seer who's finely honed abilities to read energy and see and communicate with the unseen have given birth to two pioneering and perception shifting programs, Awesomeism and the Journey Back to Love, that have transformed the lives of thousands of parents, women and children worldwide. She's also the pioneering author of Awesomeism, a new way to understand the diagnosis of autism. And if all that sounds a bit woo-woo, think again, because throughout her career, Susie Miller has been sought out by and collaborated with professionals in the fields of psychology, social work, education, science, medicine, quantum physics, and healing, all of whom have gone on to record, to record the fact that they attest to her remarkable gifts, as well as her exceptional ability to guide others to develop their own multidimensional awareness and learn to see, feel, hear, and experience beyond this generally accepted reality. So if you have questions for Susie, and I can't imagine that you won't, feel free to post them in the chat window as we go along, and we'll address them later at the end of this session. And now, Susie Miller, welcome. Thanks Thank you for, for joining us. us. Thanks for coming out to play. Yes, I'm here to play for sure. <laughs> for sure. And before we start discussing your 10 best spiritual book list, two questions we ask all our guests. The first one is, what do books mean to you? Uh, they're, always, uh, they're always reflections of what's going on internally. So their books are always reflections and sometimes they're reflections that jump off the, off the shelf and hit me in the head. And sometimes they're reflections that just take me a little bit deeper into myself. So I love books. So you know that, you know, whatever you're going through at any specific time, if you go into a bookshop, something's going to say pick me pick me yes exactly exactly and sometimes yeah. it just jumps out and hits me <laughs> yes. yeah yeah I mean that's such a cliche oh the book fell off the shelf and hit me but it happens totally yeah, yeah. more often than I can say <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and the other question how easy or how challenging was it for you to compile this list um it actually, once I sat down and actually did it, it was pretty easy. I mean, the, those first, those 10 kind of were, were so important at different stages of my life. And even as I reflect on them, I kind of, I can go right back to that time in my life and know exactly what was happening then. So yeah, well, I think it was pretty easy once I got to it. Mm. Well, what I'm going to do with your list is I'm going to take the book that came in at number one and I'm going to move it to the very end because it is such a powerful book. You introduced me to it, for which I thank you. And, you know, it's something that I think we should all know about and we should all utilize and we'll be better off for doing so. I will be certainly happier. Um, so I'm going to save that one to the end. It's like, you know, 
the best chocolate in the box. So we're going to start with book number two, which I cannot tell you how many times this book comes out. Mm -hmm. Autobiography of a Yogi mm. by Paramahansa Yogananda, published in 1946. It speaks to people at so many levels and it always fascinates me how it comes into people's lives. How did it come into yours? It actually came into my life a long time ago. I was, uh, I was involved in a Gnostic Orthodox monastery for about five years. I was a lay person in that monastery. And at the time, during that time, we had to read all kinds of different books. And that was one that just absolutely stuck with me. So yeah, it was, on the one hand, it was something I was meant to be reading because of my association with this Gnostic Orthodox Church and the Essenes. And on the other hand, once I read it, I couldn't put it down. So yeah. So what was, what would you say you took from that book? What was it about that book that impacted you the most? Well, it was interesting because it wasn't what the monks and nuns of the monastery would have wanted me to get from it necessarily. Mm -hmm. It was really what came about uh, naturally, which was, I was just so moved by, I'm moved by this in a lot, a lot of different arenas, but when somebody, you know, hears a calling or has a message and they're asked to deliver that message, um, and in his case, you know, in foreign territory, you know, you know, leaving India and coming to the West and opening that conversation up to people of, you know, starting in California of all places, you know, it's like, so I, I don't, I'm always moved. I'm just really moved when people um, have that deep of a calling. And I'm also moved by people who, who introduce things that are not known. You know, it's like, I, I have a lot of empathy for that. Um, so mm. he just, it amazed me. And, and the other thing too, I mean, I still, to this day, sometimes will just put that book up on my shelf, like facing me. So I catch a glimpse of it every now and again, because, oh my God, those eyes, you know, it's like, you can just see the presence um, and the, you know, intentionality in his, in his face, in his eyes. It's, you know, it's so true that the energy comes through. It comes through, you know, in the title, it comes through in the cover picture, it comes through, you can feel that energy emanating from the page. And that certainly is, I think, a book that emanates a lot of energy. Well, even when he, like when he just knew, you know, he's looking for this person that is, you know, his, his guru or whatever, it's like just to be able to have that awareness internally and know that when he sees him on that street, that that's him, you know, that's, that's him. And he's going to have the messages to give. And um, yeah. And the fact that again, he gives the message, but he also has to follow the message and did beautifully. I mean, look at what he brought to the, to the world, to the United States. It's just mind blowing. So. It's, it's amazing, you know, to read about somebody who at such a, I mean, you know, his family were fairly wealthy. Mm -hmm. He could have had, you know, any kind of a life. And, but from a very early age, he knew, mm -hmm. he knew what he was here to do and he was uncompromising in mm -hmm. following it. And, you know, you never read anything about him that, Unfortunately, it does happen with some modern day gurus. You know, we hear whispers, rumors, um, all kinds of things that are designed to 
you know, chip away at that uh, glamour and gloss, but you hear nothing about this man other than dedication. Yeah, yeah, single-minded, single-focused. You know, he was yeah. here to do something very specific, and he followed the messages to do it. Yeah. So, and yeah. I, you know, I love that word uncompromising too. <laughs> well, you know, yes. yes. <laughs> There's someone else with us that I use that word about a lot, and that's yeah. Susan Miller. <laughs> you know, I don't meet many people that are uncompromising. So when I do, it's always such a delight to me because I think wow, there's someone who can't be swayed. There's someone you could be persuaded. That doesn't mean you're not open, but there's someone who knows what they know and they're not going to be swayed from that. You know, it's written large within them. And um, that has always been something that, you know, I like that. I like that. Anyway, let's move on to another book that you introduced me to, which is We the Arcturians, mm. A True Experience by Dr. Norma J. Milanovic, published in 1990. And you wrote uh, on the website that uh, when you read this for the first time, you remember being deeply struck by the chapter about how children are raised in Arcturian societies and given you know the work you've done and the book you've written and uh, you know the process that you've pioneered I'm I'm not surprised that that particular chapter um, did so much for you but tell us tell us about it yeah it's um, it hit me because you know we all I am always looking at the way children are raised you know it's like what what we teach our children and I'm always also taken by the fact that kids really don't have any education in really what it is to be human, you know, what it is to be, what it is to evolve through that human experience. And yet in that book and in that particular chapter, the Arcturians are very specific, according to that chapter, in how they rear their children. Number one, um, parents are chosen by the community to um, bear children and they're chosen because they are, um, they're evolved, right? They're aware, they're evolved. And, and the whole community um, is always there to support those parents who have those children. So it's, it's not just a decision between a man and a woman, you know, or I don't know what Arcturians look like, but uh, you know, it's like, it's not a decision between that, um, just that couple coming together, it's really a more communal decision. And in that communal decision, it's like there's also all the support to raise that child um, through consciousness. And so even when the, this race, when they go to school, they're educated by the most aware among the community, right? And they are, they evolve through their education process, not based on what they've um, learned as far as accumulated, as far as um, cognitive kinds of information, they go to the next grade, so to speak, based on their capacity to give back to the community, to give back to and to support um, the greater whole. So they're taught from the very beginning to use the consciousness that they've been given graced with to offer it back to something bigger than themselves, which, um, yeah, it just, it made me think of like, oh my gosh, maybe it wouldn't be so exciting 
to have people telling you who can have kids and who can't have kids. That's probably not going to go over very well. But the, but the, I just love the piece about that that community was there to support them and that it was all about evolving. It was all about evolution. So, yeah. It yeah. sounds like something incredibly idealistic. Um, yeah. And if you think about, wow, what would our planet be like if we did that? Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I just... I'm always taken to, even when I meet families, you know, working with families all the time, it's like I meet people and sometimes people are so conscious of what they're doing and why they're doing it, how they're doing it. And they always strike me too as, yeah, what, what kind of child does that raise versus, you know, just, oops, you know, we're having a baby and here we go. And oh my gosh. And you know, have it worked through my own stuff. And, you know, so it's fascinating to me. Fascinating. Mm, yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah, and it, it is a book worth reading. And I remember exactly where I was when I read that book. And I remember how it impacted me as well. So, yeah. Um, the next book, number three, Falling Into Grace, Insights mm. on the End of Suffering by Adyashanti, published in 2011. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love Adyashanti. It just makes my heart warm just Same thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Just such a gentle, kind, clear man. And um, it just, that book came actually at a time where I was really challenged. I was really kind of struggling. Um, emotionally, I was struggling with my own thoughts. And um, I had kind of come through a period of, you know, like really knowing what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it and doing that. And then that had transitioned off. And so I picked up that book about that time. And I had actually just left one of his silent retreats when um, I picked up that book. And what it really, what really hit me is that he talks about it from the very beginning as a child he became aware that that the adults in his environment they actually believed their thoughts and he saw, he found that so um so both uncomfortable and kind of you know unbelievable that that the adults in his environment actually believed what was going through their head and it was the very first time i went oh, okay i'm that's exactly what i'm doing right now that's exactly where I'm in this uh, suffering, you know, it's um, so just even backing off of that a little bit and maybe not thinking about my thoughts so much and just kind of feeling more into my body. Um, but the whole thing, it's um, that whole book is like a piece of poetry or something. It's like, it's really fascinating. It's amazing and very insightful as to how we actually create our own suffering, you know, um, by maybe being a little bit more involved in our thoughts than we need to be. So, mm, yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a huge one. Thoughts. Yeah, we think they well, they are things and they are real, but we need to be more discerning. Um, book number four, I Heard God Laughing, mm -hmm. Poems of Hope and Joy by Hafez translated by Daniel Ladinsky, and that was first published in 1996. Mm. You're a yeah. romantic, aren't you? 
I am a romantic. I'm totally a romantic. And yeah, yeah. you can see I literally, this book is beat up. I have it next to me more often than not. Um, yeah. Um, Hafez, I mean, what it's, again, it's that connection to the divine, that connection to the beloved and, you know, he, like Rumi, kind of uses words that most of us, you know, don't use on the regular basis, but such an invitation to a deeper place within yourself. And this book was actually given to me by, by this young woman who her, way back in the day, um, I helped this uh, gentleman transition and I had never done anything like that energetically. I wasn't even sure why they called me, but but she asked me if I would help and she knew he was dying. And so she just basically wanted to know what was going on, you know, as he was going through that transition. And he was in and out of consciousness um, by the time I was working with him quite a bit. And so, and it was a fascinating experience to watch him leave his body literally from the lower chakras up, just, you know, he started taking off. Um, and so after that transition was done and she had had time to, to mourn and everything, she sent me this book. And it's, it's such a, I mean, I heard God laughing, you know, it was, it's such a testament to life that it, it really touched me. It just really hit me that here she had just gone through this amazing transition with her father and um yeah and she saw it as life-giving you know so it was really cool so i i do read it a lot <laughs> it's interesting that some of our best poetry you know it comes from sufis mm, totally yeah. yeah and ancient you know i mean 15th century 16th yeah. century you know it's like in it's always amazing to me too how relevant it is. I mean, I can read one of their poems, Rumi or Hafez today, and it's just as relevant, I'm sure, as it was back in the day. Mm. So, yeah, so book number five, this is another book that I read years and years ago, and years ago, and you've made me want to reread it. Um, Dancing in the Shadow of the Moon, mm -hmm. Michelle Smallwright, Paralandra. Mm -hmm. 1991, she published that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow, Michelle Smallwright. Um, you know, talk about a pioneer. You know, she's, uh, I think I put on the, the thing I wrote about that, that, you know, Penny Kelly is another person that falls into that category for me where, you know, they were having these multi-dimensional, multi-reality experiences, you know, way back before anybody was having any conversations about this whatsoever. And, um, so, you know, and Michelle Smallwright started Paralandra, like the Flower Essence Company, which is amazing. But this particular book is not about this. This particular book is about her, what she calls a split molecular process. So, um, and I was really having, at the time I read this, I was really having some crazy experiences <laughs> that I had no way of grounding into my body. I hadn't heard anybody talking about some of the things that were going on like this. And so as I was reading this, I was going, oh my gosh, even to the point where, um, well, let me explain the process first and I'll tell you what some of the synchronicities, but one of the things that would happen to her is 
she would fall asleep in, you know, at the end of her day on the farm at Paralandra, she would fall asleep and she would wake up and consciously be in another reality. She'd consciously be in another place that she called the cottage. There would be other people there. She was looked slightly different than she looked, you know, in her day job, let's say. And um, she was she was aware of things that she wasn't necessarily aware of there. So it was definitely like there were there were two Michelles, right? And they were one was existing in daytime and one was existing after she fell asleep, but in another daytime. And number one, it was just fascinating to me. On the one hand, I'm thinking this woman literally never sleeps. You know, it's like she's, she's literally consciously aware of these different realities. And it really opened me to more of a grounded approach to different realities, you know, to different kinds of experiences like that. But I remember one day I was like laying on the sofa, you know, with my feet up on the sofa and I'm reading this book and she's talking about the cottage and she's talking about, um, you know, she's talking about the flowers. She's talking about the thatched roof on the cottage. Um, she's talking about the way it looks. And I look up and the painting that I have had at the time over my sofa was of a cottage with all these flowers and all this other, and I was like, oh my gosh. It's like a little part of me hoped she'd just pop right out of the painting <laughs> and we could have a conversation. But um, yeah, it's, she, just, I think the other thing that got to me in doing the integration, kind of integration work that I do, now I see why I was interested in it then, because just what she went through in order to have this, you know, these two worlds, you know, really function as one, you know, in her physical body and through her physical experience and the capacity to bring information from one reality into another. And, you know, we can see that all as kind of science fiction or something like that. And at the same, but at the same time, we're all doing some version of that all the time, right? You know, we're all picking up information from somewhere else that we don't know where we got it from and bringing it into a different reality. She just was living both, which was amazing. Mm. Have you ever been to Paralandra? I haven't been there. Yeah. By the time I really wanted to go, she wasn't accepting any more visitors. She used to do tours, but mm. by the time I wanted to go, she wasn't doing yeah. that anymore. Me too. Me too. And that was sad. Yeah. I'd love to meet her though. I mean, I just, even the images of her in that book, she just, you know, it's, it's like the, it's like women get to a particular age in their life and a particular state of their own awareness. And they're like, I don't really care what you think. You know, it's like, so in just even the images that she created for herself were like, you know, ask me a question. I dare you. <laughs> you know, she's going to, she's going to blow your mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So number six, another book that I've read and uh, yeah, what an eye opener. My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey by Jill Bolte-Taylor, PhD, first published in 2006. And I'll tell you what I discovered today was that it was first published on lulu.com 
which means that she self-published that book. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it must have been picked up you know, by a mainstream publisher at some point. But yeah, I unearthed that fact today. So, you know, all those writers out there that are always asking me, you know, can you self-publish and can it go on to be a bestseller? Well, yeah, it can. You can, for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. Mm. Amazing. So what was it about this book that particularly appealed to you? Well, I was, um, I was actually right in the middle of writing Awesomeism um, and um, had come across that book and it was, it really had an awful lot to do with the fact that she was describing through her stroke, you know, she has a left hemisphere stroke and she's describing through her stroke how this state of consciousness just opened up for her and how, how expansive she became just because that part of her brain was shut down. And working with all the kids with autism that I have and had over the years, it was, this is exactly what they were explaining to me as well, that that's how their brains functioned too. And so here was somebody who, a neuroscientist through her own personal experience was able to share exactly what the kids have been telling me for quite some time. And again, she's also one of those those pioneers, you know, she's one of those individuals who she could have just kept quiet, you know, especially being a neuroscientist, you know, it's like she could have just kept her mouth shut and had her experience and gone back to work as usual. And again, that kind of uncompromising nature for her too. I mean, she just was not able to, once she had seen that perspective um, and seen through that lens, she couldn't not express, you know, and, and I just love that she's out there with the authority of a neuroscientist saying these things about, you know, alternate realities. And, and it does make me think too, it's again, we have these ideas that, or I have these ideas that, you know, it's like we're somehow reaching externally for something but you know if you shut off one part of the brain the experience is different than if you have the whole brain functioning and if you shut off another part of the brain the experience is different again and so i just um i don't know it made me really also question all the different um all the different aspects of reality that are held like just within our physicality you know, we're usually trying to get away from our physicality to have the experiences, but there's something about going right into the physicality that I think is really fascinating. <laughs> mm. One of the things that um, really interested me about this book was she decided to become uh, a brain scientist because of her brother yeah. who had schizophrenia mm -hmm. and she wanted to understand it. And when you think about the synchronicities here, because... You know, I have a theory and I can't say it's anything more than that because I'm, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know that um, schizophrenia is, is not a mental issue. It's a spiritual issue. Yeah. And, um, you know, so here's her brother who may or may not have been having this, you know, spiritual experience. She decides to become a neuroanatomist 
based on that and ends up having her own spiritual experience. So, you know, just beautiful synchronicity there. Yeah, they both get to the same place through different means. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that in itself is enough to shift our perceptions. Um, Yeah. Mm. I think one other thing about that book that also got me and this is related to the, especially the nonverbal kids with autism that I work with all the time. You know, she was saying that so often people would come into her room when she's in this altered state, you know, and she can't verbally communicate. She's not, she's not moving around. And yet she was completely aware of how people felt when they came in the room. She was completely aware if they, you know, thought that, you know, we're having, if they were having a bad day or if they thought that she was just kind of a nuisance to be taken care of or whatever those kinds of things are. And again, it was something that the kids have said all the time. It's like, you know, you think we're not listening, you think we're not hearing, you think we're not aware, and yet we're picking up probably even more so of that subtle information than than um, you think we are. And so she really gave voice to that for me as well, which was wonderful. So book number seven, Rumi, The Book Mm. of Love, Poems of Ecstasy (laughs) and Longing, 2002. Yes, here's the romantic in you coming to the fore again. Yeah, I mean, come on, it says it all in the title. It's just like um, Poems of Ecstasy and Love. It's uh, yeah, I, I think I have as many Rumi books as I have anything else. I mean, it's like if I have one author that I have the most of, it's definitely um, Rumi or somebody who has interpreted his work. And I do, it's, it's just, I don't know, you know, it's like, especially right now, I mean, the world kind of is like, ah, it's chaotic and it's all over the place. It's like, Sometimes I just like the romantic in me definitely likes just going back to um, somebody who just touches the soul, you know, somebody who can just open up the heart. And uh, it's like, I don't know, honestly, it's I can open one of those books in the right moment and I just need a good cry or something, right? And I open the book and there's the words, you know, it's like the tears are streaming down your face before you get through the through the poem. And so, um, I don't know, it's, he's, Rumi to me is almost like medicine. You know, it's like, it's every time that heart just starts, you know, wrenching up and closing and you're going, okay, I don't really want to do this anymore. This isn't fun. What the heck's wrong with everything? That's where I go. And it's like, okay, just lighten up, soften up. Yeah. Well, it brings you back to the core, doesn't it? And the core is love. Yeah, totally, totally. And just, and the wisdom and the, and the laughter and the joy and the, I mean, yeah, it makes you wonder if that's what it really is like to be that connected to your own source, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Book number eight, Power Versus Force by David Hmm. Hawkins, 1985, the inventor of the Hawkins scale of consciousness measuring. So um, I have to confess that I don't disagree. I've read the book. Um, I'm fascinated. I'm intrigued. And I, I can't find the science in there. So for me, there's always a question mark is, you know, it's like the pendulum. Is this 
you know, me controlling this. So therefore, how can we actually say it's real? But I know you've had a lot more experience with the Hawking scale than I have. So tell us what it is about the Hawking scale that, that interests you. Yeah, I think, um, I, I get what you're saying, Sandy, about the pendulum and the and scales like that. And I'm and quite honestly, I'm a little bit hesitant. I mean, I've had people, um, you know, calibrate me, as they say, through the Hawkins scale. I've had various people calibrate me over the years, and they all calibrate you a little bit differently, you know. And so there's clearly a, a human factor, you know, that play comes into play. And I did kind of smile because one person in particular who calibrated me, who really didn't like me all that much, she, that was the lowest calibration. <laughs> I thought, fair enough. You know, it's like you pretty much told me how you felt. That's all right. And, um, but what I did like about power versus force is I liked the scale itself. I think the languaging of um, the way that that's laid out gives us really, you know, where he talks about, um, you know, he'll talk about joy being at a certain frequency. He'll talk about guilt and shame, you know, being really at the lower end of the frequency band. And that makes really good sense to me. And hmm. I liked using that to say, okay, well, either this is where I am, or maybe this is where one of my clients are. And if we can move even that incremental, you know, from, let's say, um, anger and frustration, or, or maybe we move from guilt and shame to anger and frustration, right? That's, that's just, just enough of a tipping over the edge that it changes the frequency. So, so I, liked, I liked that book for that reason. Um, I was also spending a lot of time with Bill Tiller at that point because we were working on the autism intention experiment. And he, um, you know, of course he was a, a student of Hawkins and so were many of, of Bill's students. So that's where all this calibration stuff started really coming into play. And um, yeah, it's, I also liked, I'll tell you one thing I liked and one thing I didn't like about that. The thing I liked is I liked the idea that um, we could find a, we could find out or we could have an idea of where somebody was, you know, like, so a lot of times the way somebody talks and where their consciousness is can be two different things. It's like we can speak to a deeper part of somebody. Um, if we understand kind of where they're coming from at a deeper level. So I liked that part of it. What I didn't like as much is the way Hawkins developed that scale. You know, he had like a Christ or a Buddha or a Jesus, whatever, up in the three, up in the 600s, right? And then something like guilt and shames down like at 20 or 30. So, but in my I, my belief and my experience would say that no matter who a soul is that is here, no matter how evolved they are, they would have continued to evolve. And so something about a stagnant, that that, that number is stagnant, it's low is here and high is there, never quite resonated with me. Um, I think about that about a lot of 
Rudolf Steiner and the, and the Waldorf School. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Rudolf Steiner, if he had still existed, you know, today, not just in the 1920s, and it, he would have evolved beyond what he knew even then, and he was brilliant then, right? Mm. So, um, so anyway, that's part of the book that was not as exciting, but it did, it did make a huge difference for me to see it that way. Good. Okay, yeah. book number nine is The Sanctity of Human Blood, mm. Vaccination is Not Immunization by Dr. Tim O'Shea, and that was published in 1999, which for you was a very pivotal year. <laughs> it was. He came along right at the right time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in 99 is when I had my experience with my little autistic friend who kind of blew my world open. And, you know, in part of our conversations, he was sharing with me that uh, the vaccination was actually what kind of set him on his journey with the characteristics of autism. And once I started to really look into this back in 99, um, there wasn't really much written back then. There wasn't really much being said about it but this uh, I think Tim O'Shea was a chiropractor actually and he had written all of this information proving that you know this whole concept that vaccinations are not immunization so when you get vaccinated you're not protected against anything was his and it was just the way he laid it out um, it was so was so significant for me that I literally went to my husband at the time and said, all done, no, no more vaccinations for our kids. And um, it really, he had, a, there was enough science in it, there was enough information in it. And based on what I was hearing from my little uh, autistic friend, the two, the combination of the two, I mean, so my youngest daughter hasn't, she's 23 now and she hasn't had anything since, I think the last thing she got was when she was 18 months old but she hasn't had anything since then yeah so. yeah and this this um unfortunately is becoming uh, a really loaded topic that people cannot discuss uh you know intelligently and impartially um so you know it's a shame that this is happening in the world and i don't know how one resolves it it's not a conversation I engage in, you know, yeah. a great deal, but I know it must come into your world frequently. Yeah, it's one I have a, an awful lot of the time in. And what's interesting to me is that about right now is that this is coming to the forefront now. I mean, people, you know, back in 99, you know, nobody even really questioned their doctors, let alone, you know, um, what's going on now. And so... So we're really taking a, a good hard look at this, which is wonderful. And even just as a funny side note, my um, ex-husband, who you can imagine, you know, um, back in the day and, you know, executive and all this other stuff. And I'm telling him I'm having weird experiences with kids with autism and we're not vaccinating our kids anymore because <laughs> of it, you know. So he was like, okay, whatever. And just wasn't really buying into it. And just probably within the last month, I got a Facebook message from him 
And he said, oh my gosh, Susie, he goes, I'm looking into all of the stuff that's coming out about vaccines. And he said, you've known this from the very beginning. And it just like, oh, my heart just went, yes, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're now going to go to book 10, which is really book one. Mm -hmm. um, I think the book that is the, the top of your list. And uh, yeah, I, I know why it's at the top of your list. The Presence Process, A Healing Journey into Present Moment Awareness by Michael Brown, published in 2005. And I know you're doing this for the seventh time. What do you like about it so much, Susie? You know, it's like this process, I swear to you that if you could, I could tell people to just buy this book, go home and don't do anything else for the rest of your life other than do this book. And I promise you'll wake up. I'm pro I promise you'll be more and more aware of who and what you actually are by the end of it. So I go back to it over and over again because it just has this amazing way. He, this is a man who, South African man, who had a very debilitating disease that was causing the nerve endings in his body to just fire all the time. So it was excruciating for him to be touched. And, and he was feeling it not only externally, but internally. And he basically, you know, went to the medical professionals, he went to all kinds of healers, he went to all kinds of, you name it, he did all of it. And basically, the bottom line was that he was either going to be on medication for the rest of his life, which he was told most people commit suicide on this medication, because it just numbs you out so much that you just, life feels lifeless, right? So he had that option or he had the option of being in this excruciating pain all the time. And so of course, none of those were options that he wanted. And, and he basically, it took him eight years to develop this process. And basically it's um, a process where you, you basically are present to the emotion that is arising within you. So he always says, you know, we're, we all get triggered every day, right? Every one of us gets triggered every day. And we can assume that that triggering is negative or it's something that's working against us or it's something that's bad about us. And his viewpoint is not that at all. He basically says that the person who is triggering you is just the messenger. They're just the one that consciously or unconsciously poked that button that of that emotional energy that never got healed, never got met, never got integrated. And so what he says is the messenger comes up, you dismiss the messenger, and instead of pointing your finger out and, you know, it's your fault, it's your whatever, no, it's bring that information back into yourself and, and just be present with what's arising, right? And as you're present with what's arising, you're naturally going to get the message. So this is a, he created this 10 week process basically. And it involves like a 15 minute breathing uh, practice, um, continual breathing. Um, and then there are statements to make, like my statement for this week is um, I 
integrate charged emotion. So when I'm just, you know, not thinking of other things, that's my phrase that's meant to be running through my head. And I got to say, I mean, I've done it seven, I mean, I'm probably in the fifth or sixth, I think it's sixth week now, um, seventh time through. And every single time, I mean, it's like whatever is arising, I can, I can immediately find where the core of that was, right? Just big, by doing this process. And what I love about Michael Brown too is, I mean, the guy could have really made all kinds of money, you know, creating practitioners and doing this on a world stage. He basically said, here's the book, go do it, you know, which I really appreciated and loved about him. And it's true. If you just take the book and do it, actually do it, um, it works. And from, I use it all the time. I'm at, it's mandatory reading for a lot of the courses that I facilitate. But even with the clients that I'm working with, it's, I use it every single day. And the cool thing is, is that it's proven to me that when we layer out the parts of our subconscious that never got met, never got loved, never got appreciated, you know, doesn't matter why or who or what, but when we actually turn around and meet those parts of ourselves, um, that energy integrates, it clears, and what happens immediately is the bigger part of ourselves starts flooding in, right? It's almost like the bigger part of ourselves has no place to, to anchor with all of that old trauma that's so, I tell people all the time, and I so wholeheartedly believe this, it's like as far out as we go into the ethers, into multidimensional realities, that's as far in as we have to go within our own psyche to give that a resting place. So um, brilliant, man. I just, I love that guy. <laughs> just amazing. Yeah. And it is quite a testament that he stepped back and, you know, has chosen not to make lots of money out of this and be a public figure, just hand it off, you know, and give this gift to the world. And I have to say that even if you just read the book, Totally. And don't do the process. It yeah. is yeah. going to affect you. It is yeah. going to yeah. affect you without any doubt whatsoever. It was the one book that I literally, I, I can't even remember now how I found it or who recommended it to me. But I remember when I went and picked it up at the bookstore, um, I just, you know, you grab the book and I, you know, just was holding it. And I was going, whoo, just, I it just, there was just something that was so exhilarating just about holding it. And I remember take going home and going to sleep that night. And I just, it was laying on the end of my bed, um, wasn't ready to start it yet. And, and it literally took me about a year until I did start it, which I think is pretty typical for most people that I recommended to it as well. But I remember putting it on the bed and going to sleep that night and just like having this dream like of all of this like darker kind of stuff and I was like oh I don't want anything to do with that book because you know it's bringing up all this stuff only to find out a year later when I did start it that yeah that's exactly where you want to go you know into that shadow stuff and reclaim the power of it so yeah yeah, yeah. very cool you know, part of the description of it on Amazon says what the presence process procedure reveals through direct experience 
is that any attempt on our behalf to get rid of our emotional discomfort through reaction is futile. Instead, it experientially reveals to us the miraculous transformation which unfolds when we embrace the lifestyle of conscious emotional responsibility. And couldn't we all use that right now? I mean, you think yeah. about it, it's like you watch what's going on in the world and people pointing fingers and you know this this faction of humanity against that faction of humanity and it's uh, okay we're all seeing what we're seeing now but we've created that out of our own shadow right Mm -hmm. we've created that collectively out of our own shadow and the cool part is is if we know that we get to reclaim the power of that shadow and start again you know we get to do it again so yeah yeah. cool so it's probably a bit of a silly question to ask you which of these books this 10 best list of yours if you were to choose one book to give to somebody that you cared for who was starting out on their spiritual path which one would it be that one for sure yeah the presence presence process process. Yeah, yeah no doubt yeah no doubt good okay and there is something else we always ask our um guests I always ask for keywords on their page, um, descriptive words, nouns, things that they would use to describe themselves. And we always get the typical, you know, the biographical, the author, the teacher, the speaker, the whatever. And, you know, we've got all of those for you. But I want a word from you, one keyword that maybe not many people know about you, maybe your best friend might know or your family your kids something that reveals Susie behind all of this incredible expertise that you have what would it be mm, yeah I um this is where you get I, naked I, yeah exactly <laughs> well that could happen too my kids would know that yeah for sure <laughs> well actually yeah uh, uh, cleaning house in a tutu, yeah. And my and my response to my daughter was when she brought her friends home. It's hey, I have my clothes on, so that's good. <laughs> you know, it's like a clothes in. But I would have to. I mean, I'm a dancer. I'm a like I'm I'm a dancer. I'm like so. Um, yeah, and I'm a crazy dancer. You know, authentic movement. Authentic movement is my thing. So. Um, so can I add a word to that? Yeah. Uncompromising. <laughs> well, two words. Okay. Uncompromising fairy dancer. Oh, there we go. Yeah. I yeah. That yeah. Because yeah. I, I think that the dancing has this incredibly free, mm-hmm. you know, fay like quality to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. I can see you running around the house, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with, with your tutu. duster and your tutu. <laughs> yeah. For sure, for sure. That's wonderful, Susie. This has really been interesting. There's a couple of questions that I wish to ask you about your own book. Um, uh, And but first, we're going to open it up for questions. And I think, let me just have a look. Um, There have been people who've asked about, you know, the actual titles that you've mentioned, and made some comments on the things you've said. But uh, we have a question from Jane who says, can Susie talk about her own guidance? I'm not quite sure, you know, in which arena you're asking that. Um, I don't know if you want to be a bit more specific. Do you need Jane to be more specific, Susie? Um, 
unless she wants to, unless she wants me to offer something. And then if I haven't hit it on the head, then maybe she can redirect me. I'm not yeah. sure whether she's asking about, you know, what, what okay. Who are your sources? <laughs> who are my sources? Um, they've changed over the years, quite honestly. Um, at when I very first started, um, I, when I very first had my first opening, um, I had all kinds of different energies, which I considered to be guides or those kinds of things come and start show me how to do different things. I had an Aborigine come in and teach me light language. I had a woman, Polynesian woman who came in and taught me how to do like psychic surgery, like work with laser hands. And, and for whatever reason, honestly, um, I think that at that time I'm a, I was a clinical speech language pathologist, so I'm a see it to believe it kind of chick, you know? And so <laughs> at the time, I think I had all of these energies or experiences that were external to me so that I could believe it. And um, so those guides over time began to integrate and when they would integrate, they would leave. And at first I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that everything that I was seeing was part of me. So ultimately my sources are all that is, ever has been, ever will be. You know, um, it's source itself, it's all that is. And those, uh, those supports and those awarenesses of myself have come in in different, in different ways and in different ways as I have been integrating that awareness, you know, within myself. And I will say that this last round through the presence process is, is probably gotten me closer to the experience now of really feeling like that information is my source, source is my information and the information is my source. So they're both and one and the same. Yeah. I hope that answers You've also been channeling the collective consciousness of the children for a long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and I would say that there's somebody who, you know, has been in this arena a long time and spent quite a few years steeped in the world of the new kids. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, uh, you know, yours is the first voice. You've been the voice of those children. And you have been... I think one of the loudest voices, uh, I, if not think, the loudest voice. I think what I didn't realize, honestly, at first, Sandy, was that, again, the collective consciousness of the children was coming in like as an external, at first as an external, perceived as external. And I think what I didn't realize until a few rounds through the presence process, honestly, was that, that again, they are me and I am them. You know, and it's like, and I, I think this, and I'm, this is just my query, my own personal, but I, I look at all the beautiful people out in the world who channel all kinds of different information. And I've had this conversation with a lot of them. And my question is always, is that perceived as outside of you? Or is that perceived as something that you is part of the totality of who you are? Right. It's like, why does, why does one person channel the archangels? Somebody else channels the galactic realm. Somebody else channels the collective consciousness of the kids. 
you know, is it because there, there's a resonance in there, it's part of our totality. Um, and at one point, I remember the kids um, saying, especially when that voice kind of died down for a while, you know, as an external voice. And I, I, just, I just remember meditating one day and, and hearing them say, we've got you and you've got us. You know, so it's like, it's like, it's just one and the same. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I is we, yeah. me is us for sure. Um, your book, uh, Awesomeism, A New Way to Understand the Diagnosis of Autism. Um, you know, your life changed in 1999. I don't know how many of, you know, our viewers or the people who are with us today know your story, but it is an, an absolutely incredible story. And it is, um, you know, the book tells, Tell, shares your story and of the child, um, Riley, is it Riley? That's that right. blew your circuits wide open. And here we are, what, 21 years later. And everything that you have learned over the years, everything that you've been sharing, everything that you have voiced on behalf of the collective consciousness of the children has come to pass. And I can personally vouch for your authenticity and your gifts and um, you know the messages that you've shared what what do we need to know now about what is going on in the world what do the kids the collective consciousness of the kids have to say about the future that we're creating for them mm -hmm. and you know for the earth and for humanity um, you know can you share something with us mm, yeah the um Again, it's the, the future is based on not our conscious intentions, but our unconscious programming, right? So, so you know, that I, just, I just had an, a conversation with a young man um, diagnosed with autism on Facebook the other day, and I had just gotten finished uh, teaching a class, you know, the Autism Integration Series, and we were talking about just how important our own inner work is, and especially when it's related to energetically sensitive kids, right? And so they, I mean, they feel first. They, they feel first and they've always told me, feel your way through life, don't think your way through life. And so, you know, if there was a message coming from them at all, it, it's, it's just that we really do have this amazing invitation right now to feel and sometimes we're feeling because the shit's hitting the fan and we're, we're used to being able to avoid certain situations um we're used to avoid able to avoid certain conflicts but we can't do that now we're locked in our houses got people around us those feelings are coming up right and every time i have any conversation about that with that part of myself at all it always goes back to be with it be willing to be with it because if we are we neutralize it and the stuff that has happened in the past never happens again we really do get to create the world that we would like to live in but first we have to create a, a palette a place for that creation to come out of right and so giving ourselves the opportunity to just, um, I mean, I know we were all taught that 
certain feelings are good and other feelings are bad. But from the bigger perspective, darkness and light doesn't see any difference in our capacity to evolve, right? They're both pushing us to evolve. And so when we actually give ourselves the opportunity to kind of be in that energy, be with it, something neutralizes and there's all of this life force energy that comes back in and we create from there. So. Thank you yeah. for that. You yeah. know, you burst onto the scene with, with your work with awesomeism. Um, and over the years that has evolved beyond just working with the children. Although we know that often you weren't working with the children, you were working with the adults and yeah. the children. Always, um, yeah. Always, yeah. 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 Um, but you, um, you started uh, a series called The Journey Back to Love. Mm -hmm. What don't we know about love? What is missing? You know, why does this keep coming around again? Why do we have to make this journey back to love? Yeah. Because we are love at the, at the core. We, we are absolutely love at the core. I mean, we come in to this, from my, through my lens anyway, we come in as this big, bright, beautiful being, right? Being, essence, right? And then we get conditioned, right? We get conditioned and through no fault of anybody who's doing the conditioning, they're just trying to help us figure out how to function the best way we can as, you know, human beings. And they've had hurts and sorrows and, you know, they've learned through experience, right? So they're trying to prevent us from having the same pitfalls. So we get all of this conditioning that layers on top of us. So in my world, that essence is always still there. That essence and that beauty is still there. And we just spend our lifetimes uncovering it. You know, we just spend our lifetimes um, letting it come back up to the surface. And when the journey back to love started, again, it was this whole idea that, you know, we can perceive because of our conditioning that the whole world is working against us. But what if the whole world, our whole reality is working for us, even to the point of those people that come up to show us our recurring patterns? What if they're there so that we can be present to those patterns and start to release them? And in the last couple cycles of Journey Back to Love, I added the tagline or the phrase beyond shadow and light. Because again, this opportunity to, to not see, you know, the, the, the bad Susie, you know, the, the devil Susie and the angel Susie, you know, they're both working for the same, they're both working for the same boss, right? They're both working for, to bring, and to evolve that consciousness, right? And it's the same, that's the part that blows me away. It's like 7 billion people on this planet. And each one of us have different people standing in front of us, triggering and poking different places of us. Each one of us has different people standing in front of us and telling us the, the beauty that we are reflecting back to us, the gifts that we have, you know, it's all custom designed by all that is to bring us out um, back to ourselves, right? So I think that's why we, we are it, yes. And we have been conditioned out of it, yes. And we can return to it, yes, <laughs> yeah.
Okay. And the, um, the last question for me, at least, is that um, you describe yourself also as an integration specialist. And I know that integration is a really important word to you. Mm -hmm. What do we need to integrate and why do we need to integrate? Well, Michael Brown actually was the one that helped me change my languaging around that because, you know, most people perceive um, what I'm about to talk about as healing, right? They'll say, oh, well, you're, you, you're a healer. You do healing work. And, and I, I remember talking to, I was working with an awful lot of kids at that point. I remember talking to them about that or the collective consciousness of them about that. And they would say, we're not broken. We're not, just like none of us are broken. None of us is broken because we're conditioned, right? Um, we're just conditioned. And so, so what happens if we can actually integrate that conditioning? Uh, and to integrate it simply in my words, or in my experience, means to move it back to what it originally was right? What it originally was, always will be, always can be, is that source self, that essence, that being. To me, that's love, right? The conditioning is what's on top of it. And so, yeah, to integrate for me is to, to move beyond that conditioning, right? Or to see where we're conditioned so that we can begin to function again from what's already there. Thank you, Susie. Um, tell us um, about your uh, monthly energy sessions because I know these, these, this is something you've been doing for quite a few years and they just keep growing and growing and growing and uh, it's, it's an incredible experience. So for those who don't know, explain yeah. what they are. What yeah, happens? Well, right now they're actually weekly <laughs> energy sessions. We, I think when COVID started, we... I just decided that we would just do it every week instead of once a month because it felt like that was needed. But um, it really is the collective group that comes to those calls, whether they're on the call live or whether they're have just paid for the recordings or those kinds of things. Um, they're the ones that know everything. They're the ones that have everything in the field of their own consciousness about what might be beneficial to integrate in that particular moment. So literally we get on the call and I ask them to bring up whatever they want to bring up in their consciousness. A lot of times I'm sure that's them just thinking about what's going on for them at that moment. And as they flag that information, then um, it's very easy for me to see what that looks like and what that might require in order to be integrated. So um, we do a piece of energy work um, each Monday. And we base that, that energy work is based on the people who are there and also based on the energetic environment and what we can actually, um, how we can align with it. So it, we work with it instead of against it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank it's you. fine. I love it. <laughs> Susie, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and I consider myself very privileged to have you as a friend and I can pick up the phone any time. But it's also wonderful to talk to you on air about the work you do and your insights and, um, you know, 
I'm always sitting mouth open in or wondering how on earth you do it. Um, still haven't worked it out, but um, <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that you do. Well, so, I'm glad you do your part too, the grounding <laughs> part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Susie Miller, thank you for joining us today. For anybody who wants to know more about Susie's courses, the journey back to love, her awesomeism courses, and um, her uh, monthly, uh, weekly energy sessions, go to susiemiller.com and I think you'll be able to dip into, you know, something, everything. You'll find something that really appeals to you, I'm certain, for that. So Susie Miller, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for joining us as well. It's really fun to do this with you. We'll be back <laughs> next week and I look forward to seeing you again then. <laughs>